Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. On this episode of Big Boys Don't Cry, we discuss the classic film Breakfast at Tiffany's. You don't have to have seen the film to enjoy the podcast, but if you do proceed, please be aware that there are plot spoilers. Enjoy. I um I didn't mind that you're late though because I um I podcast next to where my guitars are and they haven't had that much love lately so I picked up the Telecaster and I was trying to work out how to play Careless Whisper. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> got most of the way there oh that's brilliant i i um i've been playing a bit of guitar recently um for the first time in a long time and i've been working out there's a new song from daughter called a hole in the earth and it's genuinely one of my favorite songs of the year and so there's no really good tabs available for it or chord sequences online so i've just been working it out on my own and i'm nearly there nice. um, it's a lovely lovely song um but i i have a i have a lovely song for you paddy <laughs> is it a ballad it, it is, yeah. Uh, it, to commemorate this this uh, this week's film, um, I'd just like to sing to you, Paddy Johnston. He is quite a man. <laughs> How late did you stay up thinking of that one? <laughs> it was it was just a moment of divine inspiration. Yeah. Actually, your name fits better with that. I think I think so. That should be probably be your theme tune. <laughs> Rob Gordon. Oh, that's amazing. He's got a great face. <laughs> I think we could we could just do our own version of it, and we could just alternate doing verses. I think so. I, I know. I, th- I thought that song was going to be "Breakfast at Tiffany's" by, I think, underappreciated and misunderstood middle of the road rock band Matchbox Twenty. Oh, uh, Br- "Breakfast at Tiffany's." Yeah. yeah. Um, I said, what about? Breakfast at Tiffany's, she said, I think I remember the film. Was that, was that by them originally? Matchbox I'm not 20. sure. I thought it was by somebody else. Um, it's a good song. Yeah, Deep Blue Something, it was by originally. I think we have to find this out right now. You know who would know? It's my friend Gary. We worked together at Chess and World of Adventures and Matchbox 20, his favourite band. Um, and he actually sort of got me listening to some of their um, their back catalogue. Actually, not bad. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, you're right. It's called Deep Deep Blue Something. Deep I thought Blue you something. said something because you couldn't remember what it was. What no, it was. no, Deep Blue Something. I I used to have their album sitting around somewhere. Um, me. Yeah, uh, one of those bands that um, I think deserved more love back in the day a lot like i don't know if you knew the the brit pop band long pigs yeah um yeah. who were super awesome they had that one great album long pigs um also excellent name but i think most people don't realize that it's it refers to cannibalism yeah the the other other white meat um <laughs> which is, which is a, a lovely uh quote from supernatural that is that when they refer to when they come across some cannibals yeah they're they're the um the the Long Pigs album, The Sun Is Off and Out, is one of my all time favourites. It's got it's got some great tracks on it. Absolutely love that album. 
Good name. Sounds a bit like um, The Sun Also Rises. Yes. Which is the yeah. title of a novel by boring old fart Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> Boor- that, that was his, his official name, boring old fart Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> to give him his full title. Yes. Yeah. CBE. Old Man and the Peen, more like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, welcome to our literary <laughs> podcast where we just rip on Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. We we could do probably do a whole podcast slagging off Hemingway. Well, I've only really read one of his books, which was A Farewell to Arms, which we studied in sixth form. I did not like it. I found it very sparse uh. and bleak and boring. And usually I like a bit of bleakness, but it was just like it was it was all trying to teach us about how he had this economy with words and whatever and descriptions don't have to be overblown and this that and whatever, but it was just I found it really impossible to engage with as a 17 16 year old oh okay the, I, i've not read very much um i read uh, for whom the bell tolls um which i think is is rather special yeah um i think that's a very interesting book i'm um, grateful to him at least for giving us that title for a metallica song for whom the bell tolls um, i'm gonna play play that the next time i pick up the guitar <laughs> oh man a bit of metallica great band first band i ever really went to see my first gig was the reading festival in 2003 and for the day metallica were headlining so there were a bunch of other bands on that day like system of a down and sugar cult and good oh, charlotte sugar bands cult. Like that. but um the all-american rejects as well excellent band but yeah metallica were headlining and yeah it was it was a riot a real riot what song did Sugar Cult do? Oh, Bouncing um, Off the Walls. Bouncing Off the Walls. That's a I'm tune. Bouncing Off the Walls again. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. I'm looking like a fool again. Whoa. Yeah, that was yeah. great. They're, they're awesome. That one song. I can't remember anything else they did. but Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the one thing that I remember about Sugar Cult was that their drummer was called Ken Livingston. <laughs> no way. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love it when people have the same name as someone else who's like boring or highfalutin or whatever. I can't yeah, think of it's... any examples right now. Yeah, yeah, I I can't remember if it's their original drummer or not, but um, but yeah, their drummer was Ken Ken Livingston. It's like no way. <laughs> I hope he's not as much of an anti-Semite weirdo. Yeah, a guy who want, wants to mention Hitler and gas chambers in every single conversation he ever has, apparently. Yeah, he he's a he's a weird one, isn't he? And and we we often talk about reptilians, and and Ken Livingston, he really does have the look of someone who might be a lizard. And I know that he's a fan of lizards. Yeah, and he he owns tortoises, I believe. Yeah, um, but he kind of had that look look to him where you think, hmm, if someone was gonna be a lizard, Ken Livingston would be quite high on my list of possible reptilians. He's um he's something of a frog like man as well i'd say yeah yeah if if they were doing a live adaptation of danger mouse and they needed someone to play baron silas von greenback then kevin ken livingston would be a, a standout choice for that role kevin <laughs> kevin livingston his brother the more even more frog-like one recording again there we go 
sorry, the computer was being a bit, being a bit funny. But now it's working fine. Oh, good. Kevin Livingston. <laughs> yeah, the curse. <laughs> Let's go, go the curse of Kevin Livingston. <laughs> that sounds like a, a kid's book. Yeah, like the Demon Headmaster. Oh man, did did um did, that was a TV show that actually really terrified me. The Demon Headmaster. I didn't. I wasn't that scared of um, I think the first series of it, but one of the series, it was all to do with them like making weird plant versions it was kind of like a knockoff of um invasion of the body snatchers but demon had mastered up and that really freaked me out and that that kind of story has always really scared me the kind of uh being replaced by an alien entity uh, that nobody recognizes is different that kind of thing has always terrified me mm, yeah i mean i've been wanting to steal your identity for a long time you just got to swear at more people yeah i'm not i'm not swearing enough and actually that kind of the idea of switching identities is kind of a central thing in this novel that i'm writing so i finally decided i'm going to do nanowrimo aka national novel writing month which is called national but i think actually it's international but i think inowrimo sounds weird yeah yeah it doesn't sound right it's very exciting though um yeah you you did it before right yeah, I did it before and ended up with a very nice short story at the end of it, um, where oh, cool. I felt like I didn't, I didn't feel like I could push it into a full feature length novel. Um, yeah. At the moment, I am working on a feature book, a full, a full prose fiction novel. Um, yeah. So I'm going to have to try and beat you. So I need to try and get it finished by the end of the month. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's, that's our, your, that's that's your our, challenge. That's our challenge to one another. Who gets to finish it? First? I don't think I'm going to meet the like official word count thing because I think it's what they want you to do sixty thousand words, which is two two thousand words a day. And I don't know. I wrote eight hundred words today, and but the hardest the hardest part is starting. So starting at eight hundred words today, I might do another two hundred before bed after this, depending on how it goes. But I think I can get to a thousand a day. I don't think I can do two thousand. Yeah, I, I. So I'll probably get like some of it done. But it's it's more having that impetus to to kick you into actually doing a thing. Yeah, I um, I I was pushing myself for a long time at a thousand words a day, and then I had to take a break for various different reasons, mainly not having the time. But I think I might try and get back into it in in uh, in November and try and reach the end of my first draft. Um, but we'll see what happens. Um, I yeah. do have a a um another writing gig, which is my priority at the moment. So uh, I am now yeah. writing for ScreenRant.com. And alongside giving my terrible opinions on video games, I'm now going to be able to give my terrible opinions on TV and film, which is very exciting. Yeah, just like just like you do on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, every, every single article that I write for Screen Rant will end with, uh, you know, what it's not. It's not Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> you seriously have to try and write a thing on the bridges of madison county for yeah i'll see I, I i'll try and wing it by, by the way of one of my editors and see hey yeah. guys do you want to do you want <laughs> do you want a feature written up about how much i hate bridges of madison county well it's it's a very important and culturally significant film so i think they'll, they'll come around they'll definitely yeah come around. i think so i i do want to get onto the um at the moment i'm not there in an editing capacity it's there purely as part of their writing team um which is which is exciting it's interesting to be able to come at it from that angle again rather than having editing as my priority um mm. and uh i've i've been reading a, writing about a variety of things so far um writing about 
the 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 Saw franchise, writing about how the the new Saw movie is the second worst opening weekend of the series, which is devastating for me as someone who doesn't like the Saw oh, films. Oh, really? Um, and but but I've written some interesting stuff for them so far. It's it's been nice to stretch my legs, my metaphorical legs, into that's cool into different things. And then once you become an editor, you'll be you'll immediately become drunk with power, and it'll be it'll be like weeks and weeks on the bridges of Madison County. Ten weeks on Twilight. Yes, it, the there'll be a spin-off website, so there'll be Screen Rant, and then there'll be um, Madison Rant, Wolf Wolf Rant, Wolf Rant dot com, Street Rant. <laughs> I'm just going to type in Wolf Rant dot com. Oh my god! It... It's it. No one's taken it. Really? Yeah, we've got to get on that. That is that is amazing. Why is that not a thing yet? Maybe the Wolf Boys—they're too polite to rant. Really, they just—they just want to get high. There is, however, a a Facebook page for something called Wolf Rant. Um, All one word or two, two words? Two words. There does not seem to be anything content-wise on it, apart from uh, a, a picture that was shared in 2015 saying "Happy Birthday, Tupac Shakur." <laughs> God rest his soul. So, I mean, there's there's something. <laughs> I think there's something in Wolf Run. We need to get on it. Yeah. Oh, there's a um on Wattpad. There's a thing called My Rant Book, a Teen Wolf Rant. Ooh. Yeah. Hey, this book goes out to all you people who have problems that are so insatiable that you have to rant about them. Okay, that doesn't really make sense because you don't sate the problem. Ugh. Warning, if you haven't gotten to season five of Teen Wolf yet, then I advise you to stop reading for this contains spoilers. Okay, I have to close this now because I haven't seen season five of Teen Wolf. You're not allowed to read up on it. It's the law. Yeah. I assume you've seen season five of Teen Wolf. Of course I have. I am all over the Teen Wolf goodness. (laughs) I do do like the original movie, um, but... uh... I well, I did. I, I've not seen it in many years, but I seem to remember vaguely enjoying it on a lazy Sunday afternoon once. Um, Wait, it's based on a movie. Yeah, Teen Wolf. It was a um, the guy from Back to the Future. Michael yeah, J. Michael Fox. J. Fax. De- Michael J. Fax. <laughs> Michael J. Fax. Machine. <laughs> Michael J. Fax machine. Um, um, I did not know that. Yeah, Teen Wolf. It was a um, it was a movie. Uh, with where he was a wolf at a high school, and I think he played basketball. Maybe I think there was a, there was something to do with him being able to play basketball. Yeah, because vampires have got baseball nailed down, as we learned yeah. from Twilight. So yeah, I could see that being a gig for a wolf in the basketball world. Yeah, you know, there's uh, what would be good at hockey. Airbud. Well, obviously. Has Airbud done hockey? He must have done, surely. I think Airbud's probably done all of the major sports. His, um, th- I have seen the Airbud baseball film, which is called Seventh Inning Fetch, and it is, it is a masterpiece. <laughs> did, they, did they ever do a Beethoven Airbud crossover film? Oh, my God. They should totally do that. The, the original Beethoven dog is obviously long dead. Sorry, kids. But, and uh, Airbud's probably dead as well. But it could it could happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, are there any dogs in your book, Paddy? 
Not yet. I haven't planned for I, any. I no, will it's actually, be. It's a, re- it's a relatively normal story about two two teenage girls swapping identities, but I could make one of them have a dog. I, I will suppose. be furious if there is no dog. Uh, genuinely, I will be very upset if there's no dog in it whatsoever. It requires a dog. Otherwise, I mean, that's an important part of the Paddy Johnston brand. Um, and I feel like it needs to be included. Okay. I, w- I won't make you furious. Yeah, I, w- I will be giving you one-star reviews on Amazon, surrounded by the five-star <laughs> things about this incredible novel, and then just like, no dog, <laughs> one star. Yeah, verified purchase. <laughs> <laughs> uh, verified pooches. <laughs> exactly. Don't put a space after P double O. Yeah, why did I think Breakfast at Tiffany's the song was by Matchbox? 20? I don't know. Did they? I do don't it? think they ever did even they not, did a version did they not of do it. Do a cover at all? No, because on the um, the the internet page for it, you got Deep Blue something, you got the Ridge, and then under it on on the Google, it says other recordings of this song by it says Breakfast at Tiffany's voice mail, and then Breakfast at Tiffany's future idiots. There is a cover version. When I search Matchbox 20 Breakfast at Tiffany's, it does come up with Matchbox 20 cover of Deep Blue Something Breakfast at Tiffany's. Okay, so they did. I thought it might have been one of those weird things where I once had like a dodgy MP3 of it and the artist was wrong. And then like that was just what I assumed that it was forever. Maybe. Uh, have you have yeah. you discovered any interesting bands through um, through that kind of thing? Um, none are springing to mind. Do you have an example? I do. So when I was using LimeWire back in the day, disclaimer, I never really used LimeWire. I've always been entirely yeah. legitimate when finding my NSA. Hello. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, back in the day, I was looking for Nine Inch Nails songs that I hadn't heard. Um, so this is back when my very formative years as uh, listening to music. I think I was maybe just into my teens, if not 11. Um, and, uh, there was, there was this song that came up, uh, is a, and it said, this is a new Nine Inch Nails song that's been taken off the radio. And someone had even like recorded a fake introduction to the song from the radio that they put at the beginning of the MP3. Wow. Um, and it turns out that it was a song by the Boom Boom Satellites, who I don't know if you know, they're this Japanese band, um, who no. do the sort of like, cool yeah, they're really awesome. Um, they were uh, um, a, a pair of Jack- Japanese electronic rock musicians um, who did this really weird stuff, quite like dub and drum and bass heavy. Um, that were, They sounded like incredibly 90s in terms of like the coolest stuff that you could get in the 90s that still holds true to this day. Um, and uh, their debut album is still one of my favorite albums. And I never would have found it if some trickster online hadn't put up a, one of their songs saying it was a Nine Inch Nails track. That's really cool. That's a good story. I love Japanese bands. Um, often have really, really good names. Like there's um, there's a Japanese band that I really love called the Pillows. Oh yeah. And I just feel like that's a really they're they're a sort of like Weezerish rock band. But I feel like that's just such a great name. But that like if you weren't Japanese, you probably wouldn't think of that. It wouldn't seem like the kind of object you'd name your band after. I don't know. There's, there's also the the greatly named Boris. Boris, yeah, yeah. great I, band. I adore, I adore Boris. And until I thought of using it as a name for a musical side project, the only other act who had used the name Softball was a Japanese punk oh, band. Oh, cool. 
So I didn't, uh, who were defunct at the time when I chose to use it. So there was never any crossover. You don't get lots of angry Japanese punks turning up and being like, you stole our, yeah. our friend's... You punks. <laughs> you, you stole our friend's <laughs> band's name. Nothing like that. No. Although to be fair, that is how I discovered them and then did come to like their music. So I suppose checking for ba- if band names are taken can be a good way to discover new bands. Yeah, no, it's it's cool. It's a, it's definitely but it's interesting how many random ways that you can find new things to listen to. Yeah. Also, I'm on um, Deep Blue Something's Wikipedia page, um, and it, their singer is called Todd Pipes. <laughs> That's a great name for a singer. <laughs> he's got he's got the pipes. Yeah. Literally, pipes <laughs> are a part of his entire identity. Oh, and his brother Toby Pipes is also in the band. Oh, they're a pipe-heavy band. And then there's another guy called Kirk Tatum. This is an excellent band. All they need is Ken. No, no relation to Channing Tatum. Oh, if only. All they need is Ken Livingston on the drums, and it would be perfect. <laughs> hmm. That would be a veritable supergroup. <laughs> yes, definitely. Ken Livingston on drums, Channing Tatum on keys, and the Pipe Brothers. And yeah, the Pipes Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. But we're not here to talk about the song Breakfast at Tiffany's as much as I'd like to. We're here to talk about the film. Yeah, we're here to talk about the movie. Yeah. I uh, I watched it last night. So it was kind of strange. Last night was Halloween, so we re- we recorded this ahead. So it was it was my Halloween. So film. the scariest thing for you on Halloween was the outrageous racism. That was pretty terrifying, actually. And yeah, I guess that's as, as good a thing as I need to <laughs> to open with the discussion. But yeah, Mickey Rooney, former child star and man who had an interesting life, had a lot of ups and downs and was mocked on The Simpsons, which is how I came to know of him, as, as with all good things. Mickey Rooney plays a Japanese landlord who does absolutely nothing for the plot. Um... Is literally just there, and he's got like literal kind of fake buck teeth and glasses, and he just kind of shouts at her and makes a lot of noise and hits his head on things, and it's it's terrible and horrible and unbelievably racist. Yeah, it's ridiculous how racist it is, and I think even for the time, uh, this is uh. This is a, um, a a horrible, horrible thing to have in a film, um, which is really, yeah, it's really quite something to see it in such a beloved movie as well. Um, and it was made in nineteen sixty one, and I guess if you look at, uh, let's look at other films that came out in sixty one. Um, I'm sure that none of them had like. A racial caricature that was as bad as this. Okay, you got your West Side Story. Got your 101 Dalmatians. My God, I love that film. The original Parent Trap. But yeah, it's it really is quite terrible. And the um, I was doing some reading up about it, and apparently when they reissued Breakfast at Tiffany's on DVD for the first time, they um, the DVD also contains a documentary on this character from. Um, the Asian perspective, talking about how racist it is. So it's almost like a like a disclaimer, I guess, which is good. I mean, and I don't feel like they necessarily should go back and get rid of it or edit it out because it's a historical 
thing that you should look at and should go, wow, that's super racist. And you can still enjoy the film despite this horrible thing. But it does kind of spoil it. Yeah, it's 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 very uncomfortable to watch. And I, I agree with you that it's really interesting that they included that in the DVD release because that's the kind of thing that deserves to be discussed. And you need this kind of like footnote of what was acceptable in this in the eyes of uh movie creators um at the time which shouldn't have been acceptable um and it's it's really good that they have that discussion on there um and i think a lot of the critical discussion around it since um has been very interesting um and and it's something that shows like that you can have these kind of critical discussions about art within the form of movies which aren't which can't necessarily be done in in uh in other areas um so like in video games if you criticize something for its content often it's very very there's a very very heavy-handed response where people think that you're criticizing the entire art form um and the similar thing has happened in comics quite a lot recently as well um yeah it becomes about ethics in comics yes ethics in in comic creation um, so it's it's really interesting to see that in in movies at least there's still that going on, even with something that's held up as a great example of um, of romantic cinema from the sixties, um, and this great example of of storytelling as well. Yeah, on this um, IMDb page of most popular films released in nineteen sixty one, it is number one. Oh right, okay. So there you go. It's one hundred and one Dalmatians is number five. And number ten is the Curse of the Werewolf. Ah, Wolf Boys. So even even back then, our Wolf Brothers were they were getting they were, in, they, they were, were doing it. it. And I'm I'm sure that there must have been lots and lots of awful racist movies released in in 1961. Um, but, yeah, uh, there's also Elvis's Blue Hawaii, which I watched, and I do enjoy watching Elvis on film. But I think that one had some bad racism in it as well. Yeah, probably. Again, directed towards the Japanese, which I think um, the Americans are very were very much, I think, at this time still not really over the Japanese in the Second World War. Would, would you say that's fair? I mean, having been to the Pearl Harbor Memorial um, a couple of months ago, it seems like the very the the way that America remembers that is the Japanese were evil and did all this, and we had to come and stop them. Yeah, I think um, certainly at the time that these films were being made and. And um, to be honest, there's still lots of difficulties in the portrayal of um, Asian characters in American cinema. So there was all that controversy surrounding the Ghost in the Shell live action movie mm. where um, they cast Scarlett Johansson in the role. Um, and I, I watched it and it's a fine film. Um, it's, yeah. it's all right. It, it sticks pretty close to the original um, anime. I don't know. I don't know if it was based on a manga, but I've watched the anime film and it's it's fine. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where that kind of role should have gone to someone Japanese or of Japanese descent, and it didn't, um, which is a very is a very odd choice. There are there are still these barriers um, there, um, but there's no real excuse for it. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, yeah, nobody seems to have any problem with whitewashing. No, no, um, it's yeah, it's 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 pretty pretty sickening in all honesty but yeah it's it is it is a very it doesn't make watching those scenes in breakfast at tiffany's quite uncomfortable 
were really quite painful mm. and you could you could cut them out and you'd probably shave what eight minutes off the film which would make it actually a kind of a much more agreeable time because i think it's an hour and 50 yeah hour it's 55, very long for a film from and the it's 60s. quite long for this kind of film and it it does drag a little bit or i found that it dragged a bit yeah i think that's that's a fair thing to say there's a lot of um time spent waiting for more things to happen in breakfast at tiffany's and so by cutting out the everything with mr Yunioshi, you could you know trim it down a little bit because he doesn't really add anything to it yeah it's absolutely nothing to it other than uh, a bit of cheap cheap humor and i haven't read the novella that it is based on have you no no the only thing i've read from truman capote is in cold blood um yeah same so I wonder if his character exists in the novella for the same purpose. Was our boy Truman Capote also a racist? Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what I, I didn't know, read, reading um, Truman Capote's Wikipedia page, it says here, he was known for, well, I knew all of this except for, he was known for his distinctive high-pitched voice and odd vocal mannerisms, knew that, his offbeat manner of dress and his fabrications. He says, he often claimed to know intimately people whom he had in fact never met, such as Greta Garbo. He professed to have had numerous liaisons with men thought to be heterosexual, including, he claimed, Errol Flynn. And I don't know, there's something really intriguing about people who lie on a really grand scale, especially famous people like that, because he, I mean, Truman Capote wouldn't last a second in the Twitter age. He'd be outed as a liar within two seconds. But like, yeah, the fact that he was sort of getting away with that, but not really, but still managing to have a career as a novelist. I find that quite intriguing. I think you'll find that um, it's that's alternative facts is what is what <laughs> Truman Capote would have pulled out. And and although yeah. although it would be very easy to verify him lying, um, there would be such a sort of cult of celebrity around him that, uh, I think people would just run it along with the lies, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, In fact, he could definitely get to a very, very high office. Maybe the Senate or even, you know, the President. I mean, the bar's pretty fucking low. <laughs> Make America Capote again. <laughs> so so my favourite story about, um, about Breakfast at Tiffany's is how furious Truman Capote was um, that they wouldn't give the role to Marilyn Monroe. So he'd done mm. lots and lots of lobbying because he originally thought of Marilyn Monroe as as Holly Golightly um, and was really unhappy that um, <laughs> that the role didn't go to her in the first place, which I think is interesting because like the standout thing of of Breakfast at Tiffany's is Audrey Hepburn's performance. Yeah, I mean it's it's her most her most famous performance, right? It's one of the most iconic performances of cinema. As a real icon. I mean, people go to parties dressed as this character, and like it's a style icon as well as film. It's a real, it's a cultural icon that transcends the medium of film. And you know, I think if Marilyn Monroe had done it, she'd have pulled it off in the same way. But yeah, that is interesting. So, was it? Is this one of the earliest examples of the studio just completely like doing something the writer doesn't want to do, and because of contracts or legalities or whatever, they can just get away with it? Yeah. Well. Um... I think that's always been the case. Writers have always been second place when it comes to making a film. Even even script writers come second place when it comes to making a film. Um, this came down to uh, the studios that people were working under. Um, 
So so Marilyn Monroe was under contract with 20th Century Fox, but um, Paramount was making breakfast at Tiffany's. So they couldn't get her on board anyway, even if they'd wanted to. Um, but I mean, like, I think, I think um, Audrey Hepburn gives something incredible to this film that nobody else would be able to manage. Um, and it's such an iconic role and such an iconic performance. I'm not really sure how anybody else would be able to pull it off in the same way. And it, and it like, it stops the, um, the flaws of the film from becoming greater because you're so captivated by Audrey Hepburn's performance in the film. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, like I said, I did find it really dragged and I found it a little bit boring at times, but her performance was very, very captivating as was his as well. Um, Fred slash Paul played by what's that guy's name? Um, the A team, George, George Peppard, George Peppard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was very good as well. So I think the, the chemistry between them just about managed to to carry it off, even though I felt like the way it was plotted was kind of strange. Like the first few, the first almost half of the film is all about kind of how are they making their money and implications of prostitution and all these kind of things. And then eventually they're getting it together, but then they're not. And then suddenly she's marrying the Brazilian guy and then... It all so it seems to sort of lumber and lumber and lumber and then get to this huge like climax where they're in the taxi and you're like, yes, finally, here we are. Here's the big kind of emotional payoff. She's crying. He's professing his love. He's giving her a ring. Yes, that's good. The cat's wet. They've got to find the cat. Yes, that like the last couple of minutes, like really, really threw it all back together in the best way. Whereas I think it, yeah, it just sagged a bit in the middle but I wondered if maybe that was because that was partly to do with the style of the time. I don't know. And I think you're right about it being the style because this is a this is bright at the beginning of the 1960s, and a lot of the um, revolutionary changes in filmmaking didn't come until later on in the 1960s. Um, so, so Breakfast at Tiffany's has um, a few of the same problems as Barefoot in the Park in terms of the way that it's shot um, and the way mm. that it's paced and things like that. Um, and so, I mean, most of the most of the films from 1961 that you look at there, they they will suffer from the same things because there hadn't been that explosion of cinema, and that um, the idea of the author as the filmmaker hadn't really had that stranglehold on the medium as a whole. I will not hear a bad word said against 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> no, of course not. But with, with but with 101 Dalmatians, because it's an animated movie, they're able to do whatever they could imagine, basically. Um, yeah. So those, and it's only 79 minutes. It long. is. It is a nice short movie as well. And and there's is there any racism in 101 Dalmatians? Probably. There's probably but some, but it. I can't remember no, any. The most outrageous thing about 101 Dalmatians is that a poor, struggling writer lives in a flat right next to Regent's Park. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And owns a Dalmatian, a notoriously expensive Well, maybe um, behind the scenes, he had an um, older woman taking care of him financially, much like in Breakfast yeah, at Tiffany. maybe. You just never saw about it because it was too busy focusing on the dogs. Yeah. Oh, hey, yeah. This is my decorator. Cruella. Yeah. <laughs> I did, um, yeah. The, the the older woman character, she's quite interesting because she's very kind of forceful and possessive of him, but in subtle ways. 
thought her performance was quite interesting every time she she had didn't have that much screen time but whenever you did you you did see her you're like wow that's she's she's really something yeah and there's there's lots of little moments like that um and i i haven't read the original novella but you could you could imagine a much stranger darker film being made of breakfast at tiffany's than the one that that appeared on screen um because there's many many manipulative people who are manipulative in quite horrible ways with an overall plot that delves into some dark areas but the film kind of focuses on the relationship between holly golightly and fred fake fred slash paul fake fred fred, fred paul. paul um whereas there's there's lots of other things going on which actually are quite disturbing and and, and quite complicated um which i think is an interesting way to take it yeah and it's all about kind of her past isn't mm. it and because um, and about her needing or wanting money for her brother and that kind of thing, and all these details about her that emerge very very slowly, that's almost more like the like how things emerge in a horror film, I suppose. <laughs> like in um, like all the details in Spring of how how the the uh, the female character's monstrous qualities emerge. <laughs> it's almost like that. But because, um, so she has kind of, uh, Holly Golightly has kind of a dark past. So she has a husband and kids that she left back in the sticks and the husband shows up. And like the way you could portray that, there are so many ways to portray that where you could make that seem like just kind of the biggest emotional earth shattering tragedy. And she just kind of brushes it off. And that's her character. Um, And you think that's kind of, that's kind of a horrible thing. But because the way it's portrayed is from her point of view and from, Fred Paul's point of view and because it's the film is centered around their relationship everything else is extraneous to that and you're still rooting for them even though you know she's done terrible things yeah and 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 it's all about the way that those two main characters are framed as well um in that you know Paul is complicit in his own relationship with um with with his elder uh woman who takes care of him um and but it's because of the way that you look at those characters and the way that they're framed in this ro- romantic story. Um, it's kind of like, it's got that those same parallels to Twilight, really, in that there's all of this greater plot going on, um, but the f- story is focused on these two characters instead. However, what works here is that the characters are interesting and that there's all these snippets interspersed throughout Breakfast at Tiffany's that really just help intensify it rather than being distracting in that why are we not looking at this more closely yeah aesthetically it's kind of easier on the eyes than the giant shiny wolf mess that is twilight (laughs) (laughs) just as a point of comparison i mean i I, when you watch breakfast at tiffany's you can see why it's so iconic visually but above i think all other things so the 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 imagery and the aesthetics of it are very, very, yeah, they're, they're, they're easy on the eyes. And they're nice. And there's so many little scenes where just that just keeps building. Like um, her costume changes and everything. She looks amazing in every single scene. And the one that struck me was when she's she's playing the guitar and singing Moon River herself um, in the kind of in the fire escape. And it's just a kind of doesn't really necessarily do anything, but it's kind of it's very nice to watch. Yeah, you're right. It's um, and and although there is this slow pacing you do get that variety of what you're looking at um in in the costume changes in the changes of location and things like that and you get those occasional sort of vaguely raunchy farcical 60s scenes here 
um, particularly like the party that Holly Golightly throws where she's looking to like find out more about this rich man um, and things like that that kind of they're, they're, they're very nice distractions it's a very nice distracting film to watch is a, is a good way to to think about it mm. yeah this a distraction is definitely the right word because it's like i said i i was i was also a little distracted myself while watching it which i think says a lot about kind of modern um modern attention spans blah 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 i was also distracted by the trick-or-treaters of which i think we had three. <laughs> um but yes it's, it's a nice distraction and a nice diversion but i didn't find i hugely identified with the the story or the characters as much as the the element of it being a diversion and being in a, a nice aesthetic iconic thing to experience yeah i i agree with you i think like I think a good point of reference for Breakfast at Tiffany's is Barefoot in the Park because, again, it's got that central location of a of a of like a an apartment block, and these and these two people that are sort of thrown together in it, albeit in Barefoot in the Park, they're they're a newlywed couple. Um, but again, it comes down to meeting these strange people that they live in close proximity to and discovering all of these strange things that go on and also discovering things about themselves. Um, but in Barefoot in the Park, I, I, I personally think Barefoot in the Park is a better film, at least from a from an attachment perspective in terms of being attached to these characters. Um, and, and yeah, it doesn't quite have that for me, Breakfast at Tiffany's, although I do really enjoy the movie. Um, it's more purely on a there's a reason why this film is so iconic and that's the way that it's shot yeah. and the way and the incredibly quotable lines. Um, but perhaps when it comes to the overall plot and how well that has aged, there's something a little bit lacking there. Yeah, definitely. I, I think obviously if, if we were in 1961, we would probably be engaging with it in a very different way and thinking differently of it. But yeah, I, I couldn't help but compare it to Barefoot in the Park as well, just as a point of comparison as a film that we watched on this podcast that's also from the 60s, although it was a little bit later. But I think because Barefoot in the Park is based on a play rather than a novella, I think it, it has to approach action in a very, very different way, just in terms of the adaptation and the source material that I think that will have made a big difference to it as as well. Um, and not least of all, a, a play versus a novel by Truman Capote as well. A very, very deep and intriguing writer. Yeah, and, and I think that's right. And perhaps the the fact that Barefoot in the Park, although although we talked about it kind of in a detrimental way in terms of like the staging and things like that, it probably did help in terms of the transferring over to um, to cinema. Whereas here, I mean, Truman Capote is known for creating these, not not necessarily, I'm not sure dense is the right word, but you know what I mean, um, in terms of like the, the sort of like rich vibrancy of what he writes about. Um, well dense. Well dense, bruv. Um, <laughs> um, and and it mu- it's quite hard for that then to be transferred over to the screen in that way. And, and from what I've from what I understand, the novella of Breakfast at Tiffany is very different from the from the film. Yeah. So I think adapting it was always going to be a tall order, and they definitely pulled it off. So that's that's good from that point of view. But yeah, to compare it, compare it to Barefoot in the Park, it's really interesting because they both approach humour 
in a very different way as well. There are so many, as you say, like eminently quotable lines from this film. And there are some genuinely like really funny moments as well that break up the pace. But the the humour isn't found in the interactions between people and in the action itself. It's found in just kind of small throwaway moments. Because you could take all of the humour out of it and you still have a, you know, a love story. Whereas I don't know that in Barefoot in the Park you could extricate the humour from it. No, I think you're right. The humour is such an integral part of Barefoot in the Park. Um, it's very, very focused on the comedy aspect of it. Um, and so it it seems more seamless than Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I think feels a little bit more like piecemeal as a piece of cinema, um, where you're you're there's various different scenes that you can pick out, but as an overall sort of like project, as an as an overall piece, it doesn't quite work in the same way. Yeah. But there's nobody in Barefoot in the Park called Sally Tomato. So. <laughs> no, that is true. That is true. <laughs> well, that was a really, really good name. Um, this, some of the lines that I wrote down um, that I thought were funny, one of them I can now not remember the context at all, and it's hilarious out of context. It says, I'm going to march you to the zoo and feed you to the yak. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I would a, would a yak eat a person? Yeah, probably. I think maybe not a live person, but uh, yeah, you'd have to cook them just right. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to, you know, medium rare. That's how the yaks like it. Yeah, and some of the other lines that were good. So, when um, the at the very end that conversation that they have. Um, as he's talking about how you know you think that you 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 want to be a free spirit because you don't want to be in a cage and be confined, but you're already in the cage. The the, the idea of the cage that's a really interesting idea when applied to to romance, obviously. But obviously, it's it's kind of then deflated when the only reason she goes back to him is because he he gives her the ring. Really, like she, the cab's driving off and she's looking at the ring, and then she's like, "Stop the cab." And then, and only then does she decide to go back and search for the cat that she meanly threw out of the cab. Yeah, and there's this there's this impetuousness to her character, isn't there? Um, and uh, it, it, she's almost similar to to Summer in Five Hundred Days of Summer, in terms of that single mindedness and um, like not not determination to have any long term goal, but determination to to pursue what she wants to do. Um, and so I, I think it's quite obvious that that you can see the strands of Holly Golightly, as played by Audrey Hepburn, throughout romantic cinema, really. Yeah. And this, I was thinking, even though obviously we've discussed how it's a term that should no longer be in use, I was thinking slightly, this is a proto-Manic Pixie Dream Girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As much as that, that shouldn't exist, there is that... that um that almost impetuousness to her, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Um, yeah, and the, the flightiness yeah, of yeah. her character that, you, like you say, can definitely be traced through romantic cinema as a, a male ideal of women. Yeah, for for certain. Um, and I, again, I wonder how much of that is in is in Truman Capote's original novella. Yeah, we we've said that so much on this podcast that I feel like we now owe it to our listeners to go and read it and then report back. Okay. Big big boys do read next. Yeah, the the big men's book club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But um, yeah, so there, there's that element of it, which which does, you know, on a, a modern reading does make it seem a little bit kind of dated, but interesting as a, a precursor to romantic cinema as a whole and very significant to the goals of this podcast. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, and, and I'm pleased that we got the chance to watch it because it is one of those all-time greats of of romantic cinema. Um, so I think it's important for us to have, have seen it in this context. I watched it before, but not in a very long time. Um, and so it was interesting to re-watch it from a more critical standpoint i suppose yeah i am um, i had never seen it um i i think um a lot of, a lot of people i think maybe probably most women our age have seen it because it's held up as this kind of bastion of romantic cinema uh but my wife claire said that she she had obviously heard so much about it and i think when she was in her teens bought the dvd watched it and then threw the dvd in the bin because she hated oh, it so right. much okay and she was just so annoyed by the the this idea of her trying to be such a free spirit, but then allowing herself to be put in the cage and to be like the whole time she is ruled over by all of these men, even though she the whole thing is about her trying not to be. Yeah, yeah, um, and 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 that's one of the overall sort of I can understand that being a frustration point, um, and it's one of those big. Um, those big sort of complexities of the film and that's kind of what it revolves around um and uh it, it's interesting that at the end of the novella it doesn't have this happy ending where she she goes with the person who loves her for who she is as opposed to the idea of her um oh, does it no not? she goes off on her own there's no um there's no finding the cat in the rain that's mm. interesting because see that would have been a much better ending, not for the cat. No, obviously. I mean the cat probably would have gone off, lived a catty life. Yeah, it's a, it's a very very cute cat. It was. I mean, I'm, I'm more of a dog guy, but I do like cats. But this incredibly photogenic cat, um, apparently his name was Orangey, and it starred in a bunch of other films too. It got it got a credit. I mean, yeah, the even that there wasn't. The cat unions weren't very, very active in those days. The cat did very, very well to get a credit. And on the to film. this day, uh, the cat is the only cat to have won two versions of the animal Oscars. Yeah, really. The Patsy Award. Yes. Yeah. He, uh, Orangey the cat, won one for this and won one for a film called Rhubarb, uh, which was its cinematic debut. 1951 rhubarb as rhubarb uncredited (laughs) uh rich eccentric tj banner adopts a feral cat who becomes an affectionate uh, pet then tj dies leaving to rhubarb most of his money and a pro baseball team the brooklyn loons paddy paddy did you travel back in time and make a film (laughs) this this sounds exactly like the kind of thing that i would write it, it sounds incredible. Um, Except it would have been a dog. When the team protests, yeah. publicist Eric Yeager convinces them rhubarb is good luck, but Eric's fiance Polly seems to be allergic to cats, and the team's success may mean new hazards for rhubarb. <laughs> See, that that's really good as well, because baseball players are notoriously suspicious. Um, superstitious, not suspicious. 
superstitious. Could be suspicious as well. You never know. As as we're recording this, Game 7 of the World Series takes place this very evening between the Astros and the Dodgers, and I dread to think what kind of like hoodoo, voodoo shit they're getting up to in their clubhouses preparing for this game. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I th- yeah, it's one of those things with sportsmen, isn't it, where they are very... Um... They're very superstitious. Um, goalkeepers in football apparently are particularly superstitious. Yeah. Really? Um, although I don't know if David Icke is. <laughs> well, you, you could say that he takes superstition to a whole yeah. other level. <laughs> you could. <laughs> he transcends the very concept of superstition. He is... Um, uh, he he's so superstitious that Stevie Wonder wrote a song about him. That's how superstitious he is. Very superstitious. Reptilians on the moon. <laughs> Watch out for those lizards. <laughs> They're gonna get you soon. <laughs> yeah. Have David Icke and Ken Livingston ever been in the same room? I'm gonna search David Icke and Ken Livingston, and I really hope that they've done like a panel together. Imagine if they did a podcast oh together. God. Lizard cast. That would be the greatest podcast. <laughs> Lizard chat with Ken Livingston and David Icke. David Icke did come to Kevin Livingston's defense saying... Zo- Kevin, Kevin Livingston, Livingston the yes. drummer. David Icke said Zionism should be on trial, not Ken Livingston. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so David Icke maybe maybe as a fan of his because you know david ike has this fascination with the lizard men um so you know maybe he's maybe it's a long-term plan that if he if he becomes friends with one of the reptilians maybe he'll be able to discover more about it and it's an ongoing ruse yeah i'm just looking at um pictures of orangey the cat it's a pretty good cat Oh, I see. Has um, has did Uggy the dog win the um the Patsy Award? He must have done. Oh no, it's they stopped doing it after nineteen seventy six. Okay. <laughs> the second to last winner was Scruffy the dog from the Chuck Wagon dog food commercial. So all the big hitters won it. Yeah, yeah, all the all the the big ones. I mean, everyone everyone knows what's his name, Chucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Scruffy the dog. Yeah, so the cat was was one of my favourite things of Breakfast at Tiffany's. The other thing I really liked was that um, it had a really good title sequence. And I think I say this about every old film that we watch that actually even has a title sequence because I'm such a sucker for a title sequence. But the, the typography is really, really nice and sort of feels grandiose in a way that you'd think a film that references Tiffany's in that way would be. Um, but it's really, really good that she's standing outside Tiffany's with the door closed and she's not going in. And she's just literally eating her breakfast at Tiffany's when she's eating a croissant and staring through the window. So that's sort of literal in a way that I didn't expect. Um, but yeah, just really, really nice to look at and really got that aspect of it, of her character across of kind of wanting things that she can't have, but making out like she has them. So from that point of view, it starts and ends really well. I'd say. Yeah, and, and both the start and the end are very strong from a thematic perspective as well. 
Um, there, there's there's clearly some good artistry going on in the creation of this movie, aside from when they've got a massive racist stereotype for no good reason. Yeah, that's what I would call fartistry. <laughs> fartistry, love it. Yeah. Also, the um, Fred's Fred's um, lady who pays him has a big poodle in one scene. Yes. Yeah. Um, what what what's her name? Double A Fail, Double A Failberg, or something like that, isn't it? <laughs> fail better. Fail better. Um, yeah, yeah, she's got that big old poodle, uh, which I'm loving, loving the look of. It's a good. Poodle. And there, there's some. I also there's re- something about the wrote down uh, on my notes. there's something about the the way in which people in the '60s lived an opulent lifestyle, which is really appealing. Um, where if I was going to be rich in any decade i think 60s rich would be the best Mm. you go to really nice restaurants nice bars you know booze and food and all that stuff was very very cheap and the other thing i wanted to mention as well was that this film depicts hedonism in a way that i'm not sure had been depicted much on cinema before um and so there's lots of party scenes, lots of scenes of women being drunk and smoking and that kind of thing and having a good time and being as liberated as it might have been possible to be at the time. You know, so, so from that point of view, I think it was interesting, especially to have that in a romantic film from the 60s. It was more risque than I was expecting from that point of view. Yeah, you're right. It, it, um, it does portray the party atmosphere in a very interesting way. And... Um... This, again, was something that was shown a lot more in the 60s as they went on as well um, and into the 70s, that idea of um, of a hedonistic lifestyle and pleasure for the sake of pleasure, which is, yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah, so that was that was good, I think, that part of it, and that helped you to understand her character better, I think, and did make sense from a characterization point of view. Yeah, definitely. Um, that and And... Although we've talked about the pacing and things like that in this episode, there there are it it is a very good film in terms of pushing forward its own sort of ideology, um, or at least the ideologies of its characters in a way that it's easy to understand, um, which I think is is definitely to its credit. Yeah, sure. So there's there's a lot to like about it, and a lot of stuff that makes it feel a bit dated. But I, I understand why it's a classic and I'm glad that I watched it. And I think if you're interested in cinema at all, particularly romantic cinema, it's definitely worth your time. You know, you don't have to watch it again. Yeah, I think um, it, there's the reason. There's a reason why it is so iconic and it's definitely worth watching if you've not seen it before, just to see what kind of film it is and and see all of these cornerstones of the romantic genres that appeared here for the first time um so yeah it's, it's definitely yeah. worth watching yeah and then tra- tra- sort of tracing those lines through to modern day romantic films such as ones that we like to talk about on this podcast more often like your your 500 days of summers and your how to lose a guys in 10 days is and your twilights you know that kind of thing we haven't done How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. No, actually, we haven't. Have we? Not yet. we should do that. That's um, it's Matthew McConaughey. It's a good one. Um, and, and, and also, at the very least, this is a much better film than Bridges of Madison County. 
<laughs> yeah. In fact, as it's my choice choice next, I'm going to nail that down now. That's going to be our next film. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Have you have you seen uh, it? Many, many years ago. Yeah, I haven't seen it in ages. Cool. Well, may, maybe it's worse than The Bridges of Madison County. Maybe I'm deliberately trolling you with a film that is worse than The Bridges <laughs> of Madison County. I don't know if that's possible, Paddy. This is going to be my um, my mission for the lifetime of this podcast, is to find a film that you hate more than The Bridges of Madison <laughs> County. What did you score it out of 20? I don't know. I, I think I, I still scored it relatively it. high. Um, because it, I could understand, you, you I gracious. understood that it is a very good film to certain people. It just didn't gel for me. Um, you didn't want to make Clint Eastwood no, cry. No, no. Uh, the only reason I'd make him cry is just by whispering in his ear that Obama was president for eight years. <laughs> yeah, and that Hillary won the the popular vote. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, so do you have anything more to say on breakfast at Tiffany's? Um, no, I was, I was just going to um, possibly give a few a few facts of information about it. Um, yeah, give us your, give us your facts. So, here come here, the facts. Here come here the facts. Come here, the facts. facts. <laughs> here come the facts. Yeah. We need a, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you like it, then you should have put a fact on trivia. it. Um. <laughs> So so yeah so in terms of my, in terms of the facts Holly Golightly's character is supposed to only be 19 um according to the the novella apparently um when she first wow. meets young young Paul Fred um because you know that she was supposedly 14 when she married her husband out in the uh in the sticks yes uh, yeah. which is obviously pretty horrible um but Audrey but it's never clear in the film how much time has passed but uh, Audrey Hepburn was uh, 31 uh, when this was filmed, apparently. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you, you could have believed that she was 19, for sure. Yeah, she yeah. But a very, has a very youthful look. Yeah, and there's but a, I kind of assumed that she was supposed to be playing sort of early Yeah, 20s. and there's a vibrancy to her performance as well. Um, but yeah, so I thought that was quite interesting, that there's that discrepancy in age um, between the character and, and, the, and the actress playing her. Um, whereas often um, actresses in particular are treated very cruelly when it comes to age versus the performance they're supposed to be made. And I don't think nowadays, if they were to remake Breakfast at Tiffany's, they would give the role to a 31-year-old. Mm. And in fact, talking of Elvis's Blue Hawaii, which was made in the same year in that film, Angela Lansbury plays his mother. And she was only about three years older than him. Yeah, and that happens all the time. When you look at the discrepancy in ages between between um, actors and actresses, heroes and heroines, or love interests in movies, there's always a very there can sometimes be a very very big age gap between them, um, and it's very rarely in the with the woman being older. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so I thought that was good. The other thing was that Moon River was written for Audrey Hepburn. Um, yeah, that I did not know until I was looking at the info about this film yesterday. And um, that the, I believe the writer said that he feels that hers is the best performance of it. Wow, I'd, I'd say that's fair. Which yeah, it is. It is great. It's one of the best scenes in the film. Yeah, that that, that got me. It made me feel feel some of the feels. Um, the other the other um, little factoid I wanted to throw your way. 
is that in the scene where it where they say it should take you exactly four seconds to cross from here to that door, I'll give you two seconds. Um, it takes Paul exactly four seconds from when he starts walking to when he reaches the door. Hmm. Did you time it? I did not time it, but somebody on the internet did. Yeah. It's a well-known factoid. Yes. So, uh, so I, 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 I cannot claim that as something that I discovered myself. We need more, uh, more discoveries. Yeah. That's what we need. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so those are just a few, a few little facts that I thought might be interesting to, to share about this movie. That's the end of the facts. Da, da, da. <laughs> nice. So, how are we how are we going to rate this one? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, how many old women's hats will you set on fire with your long cigarette holder? <laughs> well, now that not, when you put it that way, it makes it makes it hard to resist giving it a high score. <laughs> Um, I think I'll give it a 13 out of 20. He said, there's a lot, a lot to like about it. Um, classic bit of cinema um, that has not aged that well. Um, so didn't necessarily gel that well with my, my modern newfangled expectations. Um, somewhat spoiled by the absolutely horrific racism of Mickey Rooney's character. But overall, an interesting watch in the context of the history of romantic cinema. Yeah, I'll I'll go one higher and go for a fourteen. Um it's it's quite a quite a biddy film to watch. Um it's it's difficult to sort of like pull in your full attention for the entirety of it, partly because there's a distinct lack of wolf boys, which, you know, is always <laughs> a real hard thing for me to get over in a film. Um but it, the yeah. the quality of the overall film shines through mainly through Audrey Hepburn's incredible performance. And just, there's so many beautiful moments in here. Um, I'd say that a film that I really love is Charade, which was released a couple of years later with Cary Grant and mm. Audrey Hepburn. And I think that is, a, I, I think like that's that. a better movie. Um, I think that's one of the best movies of the 60s. Um, and it always pains me that it's not quite as big as it should have been. Um, and so if I was yeah. given the choice to watch an Audrey Hepburn film, it wouldn't be Breakfast at Tiffany's, but I th- there's a reason why it's so beloved and that can't be understated. No, and that does that does come across, I think. Yes, for sure. And in, in a way, it's, it's hard to, it's impossible to get past that, actually. So that does colour, that will colour anyone's watching of it, I think, unless you live in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. In which case, well done for discovering this podcast. Yeah, if you literally lived in a vacuum, congratulations on somehow being alive and also finding a way to <laughs> access our podcast yeah. and give it a listen. Can you tell us about black holes? Yeah, what can you tell us about space? What are they? Where do they there go? Are wolf boys in black holes. Is that where wolf boys come from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Daddy, where do wolf boys come from? <laughs> <laughs> Black holes, kid. Now shut up. <laughs> oh, nice one. So while we were while we were talking, my friend Maddie has been tweeting us. Um, she's been listening to our Twilight episode, and she's offered to lend us two books that she owns on Twilight. The first one, she tweeted us pictures. The first one is Twilight: The Director's Notebook. No way. The story of how we made the movie. 
based on the novel by Stephanie Meyer. Um, and it's like, it's a big glossy book and the front of it is all like pictures of all various scenes from Twilight and storyboards and stuff. It looks like a, a hefty hardback, so I'm definitely going to take her up on that. And the second one is the one I know you're going to love. Um, it's it's it says it says deluxe in the corner, so you know that you know that it's legit. It says the Twilight Saga scene it, and scene is spelt S C E N E, um, and it's got it was obviously released after the first three three films. It says it's it's got Twilight and then New Moon and then Eclipse, but none of the others. And it says includes clips and images from the three all three movies. I bet this might be some kind of weird like fan DVD thing. I can't really tell what it is, but I'm going to say yes, I want to borrow it and talk about it endlessly. It looks like one of those weird annuals, like you know how my dad did those end-ups annuals. It looks like one of them. Yeah, I think I know the scene it um scene it range. I think they were kind of like DVD game type things. Oh, DVD yeah. games. We need we need to do an episode where we play the the Twilight <laughs> game. <laughs> Uh, ah, okay. Yes, no. I, I I have seen this before. There's a Disney one that I've played before. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Seen it. The DVD game. That's only ten ninety five. Oh, hang on. Plus four fifty one delivery. What century is this? <laughs> How dare they? Yeah. So yeah, Twilight. Seen it. We will definitely be playing that. Also, speaking of silly games, um, at the weekend, Claire bought this game, and it's like a it's a it's a Disney game where you have to play. You take it in turns to play Disney songs on kazoo's, and people have to guess what they are. And we played it, and it was great fun. Oh right, okay, that's cool. And I taught everyone how to play the kazoo, which is harder than you might think. Yeah, it's one of those things where you think it's easy, but if you actually want to play anything that sounds vaguely like a song. It's uh, <laughs> it becomes a little bit more difficult. Um, that yeah, you have to sort of go, <laughs> which is very good for for you. I think there was a um, wasn't there actually a Twilight video game made for like the Wii for one of the Twilight sequels? Omg, there must have been. I mean, they made loads of like really bad Potter games and stuff. Yeah, that. Twilight video game. Okay, Huffington Post, 2010. Twilight video game exists and is surprisingly awesome. I mean, from that that well-known, incredibly unbiased and brilliant, brilliantly um, bastion of integrity, the Huffington Post, <laughs> which is well-known for paying its contributors. Yeah, they're really good at that. <laughs> We're not going to lie, it's odd seeing everyone's favourite sparkling vampire in 8-bit. Holy shit, it's an 8-bit Twilight game. Yes. Oh no, there's a there's a YouTube link that isn't there oh, anymore. No. So someone must oh. have made a fan game, but I think it did get shoddy... I think it did get like some shoddy, some shoddy video games as well. Oh wait, I found it. It's on the Wii. It's Twilight Seen It on the Wii. Oh really? Oh, okay. Yeah. However, this Twilight 8-bit game looks awesome, and I really want it. <laughs> it look, oh man, it looks like the original Zelda. Okay, it, in time for our next episode, I'm gonna I'm gonna track down this Twilight game. All right, Godspeed, buddy.
Okay. So it was, Twilight was two episodes ago, and we're still talking about it. it. So I feel like I feel like we should just we should just make this into a Twilight yeah, podcast. Twilight cast. Twicast. <laughs> hard with a vengeance. <laughs> Twi hard too. Twi harder. <laughs> Twi hard, twi furious. <laughs> oh dear. So yeah, well, no, what what we'll do is we'll we'll alternate. So one episode we watch the Bridges of Madison County again, and then the next we watch Twilight again. Cool. Okay, I'm on. I'm I'm happy on that. Can we can we yeah. throw in like um, the fly every so often as well, just to keep us safe? Yeah, and the fly, the fly too, and the fly too. Yeah. Cool. So, so tune into that next time. Yeah, make sure we, you do. One week it's Twilight. One week it's the Bridges of Madison County <laughs> podcast. And we'll get guests on, but it'll be for the alternating films. So we'll get Robert Patterson on, but we'll make him talk about Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> and we'll get Clint Eastwood on, and we'll make him cry yeah, about Twilight. We can talk about um, Breaking Dawn. Yeah. Or, or ask him, ask uh, him who his favorite Wolf Boy is in New Moon. Yeah, he'll definitely have an answer. He's definitely Team Jacob. As oh, well. he's got to be. Like, he would grizzled. not be on the side of the vampires, would he? No, I reckon Mer- Meryl Streep's character in the Bridges of Madison County definitely Team Team Edward. Yeah, I mean, I reckon maybe she's related to Bella. Bella's kind of yeah. an Italian name. Oh yeah. So maybe Bridges of Madison County is like a prequel to Twilight. Yeah, they move from um, where is it? Um, Idaho, Iowa. Oh, it's Iowa. They move from Iowa to to Washington, and then the vampires appear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. So tune into that next time. I don't think I have any other bits of follow up apart from to say, go on our Twitter and check out the thing that you tweeted of um dustin from stranger things turning into guy fieri so that means we have to get him into um into sensations to play child guy fieri in a flashback yeah for certain he needs to be in there and we'll must we'll, we'll make room for finn wolfhard as well yeah yeah i mean he's he's already he's already in it but we haven't decided where yeah yeah and then I suppose if we've got two of them, we have to have them all, right? So we get all of the Stranger Things kids into Sensations somehow. Just get the whole cast in. Yeah. Stranger Sensations. <laughs> I'm totally on board with that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, two and a bit episodes into the new series of Stranger Things, and I'm very much enjoying it. Good, yeah. Well, I finished watching it now, and I I loved it from start to finish thought it was really really good just as good as the original yeah yeah so i'm very excited to see the next season next year the um the only other thing i have to say is that if you see vladimir putin don't forget to move hashtag moon putin hashtag moon putin and as um friend of the podcast adam maleski has reminded us on twitter google images doesn't disappoint with moon putin and there is an excellent picture of putin riding the moon <laughs> yep and there's one of him cuddling the moon 
Yeah, like, I think something has to be said about Putin's relationship with the moon. Oh, also, um, on the, um, you know, the the ethical fan-to-fan ticket exchange, scarletmist.com? Oh, right, yep. I highly recommend it as a website. Fuck Viagogo and all those tout sites. They can all, they should all burn in hell. Um, I used to have an account on there and I couldn't remember my username. And I signed up, I signed up again this week because I'm looking for a ticket to see brand new at Brixton Academy on November 18th. If anyone has one, please hit me up because I don't want to pay £200 for it. But um, I had to create a new username. So I put in Moon Putin. <laughs> So if you end up selling me a ticket and uh, my username is Moon Putin, it's me. Yeah, so make sure you, you're nice to Paddy if you see anyone with that name around online. Yeah, I think that's going to become my like now go-to username on sites where you have to have a username. Which is, you know, having to have a username instead of just being able to put in your email is kind of barbaric, but that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's that's all of our essential business covered. Thanks for tuning in. We do appreciate it. But as ever, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Big Boys Don't Pod and by email at Big Boys Don't Cry Podcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Hope you're having a nice November. Yes. Yeah. Hope you're all having a lovely November. That you're swimming down moon yeah. rivers. <laughs> moon Putin. He is such a prick. <laughs> He deserves to see your bum. (laughs) Never a truer word sung (laughs) on this podcast. I try my best. Good times. All right, that's going to do it for us. We'll be back next week to talk about how to lose a guy in 10 days. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye.